Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called Look at Me, World AIDS Day 2011. It's a guest essay by Arthur J. Amon, President and CEO of Global Strategies for HIV Prevention. Art Amon was the former director of the Pediatric Immunology and Clinical Research Center at the University of California Medical Center in San Francisco. Back in the summer of 1981, Amon cared for a woman who was a prostitute and intravenous drug user and three of her children. All four of them presented with unusual deficiencies in their immune systems that were aggravated by opportunistic infections that did not fit normal medical models of disease. Amon determined that the mother and all three children had contracted AIDS, a tragic diagnosis because the disease was at that time fatal. Perhaps equally devastating was the disturbing conclusion hotly contested and very controversial at the time, that HIV-AIDS was not limited to adults. Amon determined that HIV had passed from the mother to her children as an acquired and not an inherited disease. And so, in 1982, Art Amon documented the first cases of HIV-AIDS transmission from mother to infant and also the first blood transfusion AIDS patients. Look at me for World AIDS Day 2011, a guest essay by Art Amon. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December 4th, 2011, the second Sunday in Advent. Comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says your God. We read in the lectionary for this week. Isaiah 40, verse 1. As I travel to some of the most neglected regions of the world where the HIV epidemic has raged for over 30 years, I see the reality of this epidemic and its disproportionate impact on children. The number of children affected by the HIV epidemic increases each year, almost as if the numbers are simply meant to convey what we already know, that not much is being done to care for those who are orphaned or to slow one of the most neglected complications of the HIV epidemic. None of this, of course, is of much comfort to the orphaned children. I look into the faces of the orphan children I meet and often wonder what they are thinking as they struggle each day to survive. What is it like, for example, to get up as the sun rises and realize that it is unlikely there will be enough food for the day? Or that you will again stand and watch all the other children go to school with their books and uniforms while you remain still and staring? I also wonder if they look back at me, or any visitor like me, as an individual who might, just might, change their daily lives in their future. Or maybe they have gotten so used to visitors from foreign lands who come and look and listen and then never return, 
that their hopes never reach the level that creates disappointment. In the most remote and least visited orphan programs, the children run up to and surround visitors, grab their hands, and at the urging of the local caretakers, often sing a song of welcome. In spite of their enthusiasm, these orphans are frequently the most impoverished, and yet, somehow, they manage a smile that breaks through their obvious poverty. It moves me to see so many orphans in need, and to watch individual children jockeying to the front to get a space where they will be more visible. It reminds me of the scene in the movie Cider House Rules, adapted from the 1985 novel by John Irving, where the orphan children line up waiting to be adopted and shout out to the potential parents, look at me, look at me. Today, the HIV orphan epidemic needs to be made visible and needs to be seen as individual children who deserve the love and care that all children long for. On this World AIDS Day this week, I am more worried than ever about the HIV orphan epidemic. Perhaps I shouldn't be. Maybe some big international organization, or some large non-governmental non organization, or a benevolent government will take up the cause. But in reality, there are too many orphans, and so someone's got to worry. And in fact, a lot more people need to be moved to worry. We all need to recognize that there's an entire generation of children orphaned by the HIV epidemic that are in desperate need of being rescued. Just as Jesus recognized the potential of the children who sat at his feet and refused to send them away as his disciples urging, we need to acknowledge that orphans are also welcomed inhabitants into the kingdom of heaven. In 2011, the orphan crisis looms large. So large, in fact, that many will turn their eyes away, overwhelmed by the enormity of the need. Currently, it is estimated that there are over 16 million orphans worldwide with six million added to that number each year. Less than 20% of the orphans are infected with HIV. The majority have escaped HIV infection, but not orphanhood itself. In two to three years, there will be more orphans as a result of the HIV epidemic than there are adults living with HIV. Every life is important, of course, but over the last decade, the priority for the HIV epidemic have been to provide education to adults to help them to protect themselves from getting HIV infection. Or if they are already infected, to provide them with drugs to control their infection so that they will have a normal life expectancy. All this is extremely important. But the orphan crisis is a direct consequence of placing their needs at an unacceptably low priority. Children do not choose to become orphans of the epidemic, nor is there a magic medicine 
that will erase their orphan status. To worry is the beginning. There's a lot that we can and should do. Women need to be protected from unwanted HIV infection that destroys their lives and that of their family. If infected, they need access to life-saving medicines to keep them healthy so that they can provide for their children and prevent them from becoming orphans in the first place. Pregnant women can also be given medicines to keep the virus from being transmitted to their infants. Advocacy is required to protect women from physical violence, which is the major source of unwanted HIV infection. Donations will help provide medicines to keep mothers healthy and prevent children from becoming infected. Donations can also purchase food to provide severely malnourished children with nutrition so that the medicines work. This can be done for one orphan, or for two, or for five, or for ten, or even for a hundred children. Providing orphans with the comfort that there are people who believe that they have a responsibility to care for the widows and the orphans of this world. The severity of the orphan crisis may not be on the radar screen of all of the big organizations, or for that matter, most Christians. Orphans need advocates because they cannot advocate for themselves. As Marion Wright Edelman stated so clearly, and now I quote, Having lobbied for children's rights in Washington, D.C. over the past 18 years, I am convinced that the new direction will not come from inside the political process. Politicians love to make speeches about families and children, but when they get back to Washington in budget battles, kids are the last to come across their minds. Kids don't vote, and political leaders respond to three things, threats to their re-election, potential embarrassment in the media, and the promise of campaign contributions. Children, of course, don't make campaign contributions, and many of their parents are too busy struggling to make ends meet to get involved in campaigns. So if change is to come, it will happen because people like you respond in an aggressive, sustained, and even outraged way. End quote. We are in good company when we advocate for orphans. <coughs> we join with God, the prophets, and Jesus in urging the Christian community to care for the widows and the orphans of this present world. It will be a tragedy if the Christian community looks back years from now and says that more should have been done to rescue the oppressed. And so in this week's lectionary, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, we read, He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. In the flock, I see not just individuals, couples, and families. I also see widows and orphans. God has given us the privilege of gathering them together, and bringing them close to his heart. In closing, we read in James 1.27,
pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Look at me, a guest essay for World AIDS Day by Arthur J. Amon, President and CEO of Global Strategies for HIV Prevention. For a book this week, I review a title called Mysteries of the Jesus Prayer, Experiencing the Presence of God in a Pilgrimage to the Heart of an Ancient Spirituality. The author is Norris J. Chumley, New York, Harper One, 2011, 195 pages. The purpose of this book, writes Norris Chumley, is to bring the Western world an ancient prayer that can liberate us from fear and anxiety, help us to discover peace and happiness, and enable us to live each moment in the loving presence of God. The Jesus Prayer comes from Luke 18, verses 10 to 14, where in contrast to the self-righteous Pharisee, the tax collector prays, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. This Jesus prayer plays a central role in Eastern Orthodox spirituality and has made its way to the West through such well-known books as The Way of a Pilgrim and J.D. Solinger's Franny and Zooey. Norris Chumley writes that he spent eight years on this project, which in addition to this book includes a movie, includes a movie which you can find at jesusprayermovie.com. This book, though, is really mistitled, for it's more about Chumley's visits to Eastern Orthodox monasteries and their monks than about the Jesus Prayer itself. Successive chapters take the reader with him to St. Anthony's and St. Catherine's monasteries in Egypt, the oldest Christian monasteries in the world, then on to Greece and to the 20 monasteries of Mount Athos, and to Romania, Ukraine, and Russia. Chumley interviews the monks on the role of the Jesus Prayer in their monastic spirituality. What this book lacks in theological depth, it makes up for in authentic enthusiasm. Chumley, who was an award-winning executive producer in television and movies, according to the book cover, wrote another book called The Joy of Weight Loss in 2001 which chronicles how he conquered his weight problems as a 400-pounder. Along the way, he completed his Ph.D. in Theology and the Arts at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. There are better books on Eastern Orthodox monasticism, spirituality, and the Jesus Prayer, but few is exuberant about viewing the Jesus Prayer as, quote, not the privilege of the few, but the vocation of us all. Norris J. Chumley, Mysteries of the Jesus Prayer. For film this week, I review Ghosts of Machu Picchu, 2010, from Peru. Despite the melodramatic narration, 
and the hokey reenactments accompanied by swelling music, this 52-minute television production by Nova and National Geographic makes for a great family night. There are so many confounding questions about the 215th century structures cut into the terraced hills, 8,000 feet high in the Peruvian Andes. The Incas only ruled for about a century before the Spanish conquered them in 1572. But their architectural legacy remains one of the world's wonders. The site gets 76 inches of rain a year, but boasts extensive drains, canals, and fountains. No mortar, wheel, or iron tools were used with the granite rock. No written language or carvings remain to explain the sacred site. And so Machu Picchu remains a beautiful and baffling feat of engineering, evidenced by the thousands of tourists who trek there every year. Ghosts of Machu Picchu, 2010. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. And finally, for the season of Advent in poetry, we've posted a wonderful poem by Denise Levertov. Denise Levertov lived from 1923 to 1997, and for some time was a professor at Stanford University. The title of her poem is On the Mystery of the Incarnation. It's when we face for a moment the worst our kind can do and shudder to know the taint in our own selves that awe cracks the mind's shell and enters the heart. Not to a flower, not to a dolphin, to no innocent form, but to this creature vainly sure it and no other is godlike God, out of compassion for our ugly failure to evolve in trusts, as guest, as brother, the Word. On the Mystery of the Incarnation, posted at our Advent Poetry site by Denise Levertov. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for the second Sunday in Advent, December 4th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.